Welcome to Living Bread Radio Presents, a program designed to teach and evangelize about the Catholic faith through various speakers and presentations given in the local listening area. Today's show features Dr. Chris Seaman in part of his five-week presentation, Creation in the Old Testament, a series of the Walsh University Lifelong Learning Academy. Today's show is titled, Creation and Wisdom, Part 1, recorded in October 2013. And now, Dr. Chris Seaman. Uh, so we're finishing off tonight this five-week exploration of the idea of creation in the Old Testament, in the literature of ancient Israel. And uh, since this is sort of a summing up, I'm going to spend the first, maybe third of today, summing things up to try to, because as Rabbi said, you know, we've, we've covered so much ground and it's, it might be helpful to bring it all together before we move on to the capstone, which is to talk about what I call creation and wisdom. Uh, we're also, I'm also going to spend a bit of time thinking about sort of leaving the context of the Old Testament and more into the realm of Catholic theology and to ask what is the doctrine of creation as the Catholic Church teaches it and what are the alternatives to that? In other words, we've, we've talked about creation as an idea, creation as a way of talking about things in the Bible, uh, but what are, the, are there alternative ways to talking about human experience, the idea of human nature, of the cosmos itself, what are the alternatives to creation? And so we'll look at those and then seg into tonight's final topic on creation and wisdom. Okay, so review. Here are the four things we've done over the past month. Uh, each of these points reflects the main topic of what we've talked about before. Um, the first one has to do with why are there creation stories at all? Why, why do people reflect on the origin of things? Um, Sigmund Freud, a great um, humanist uh, and, of course, psychologist of the early 20th century and also a very strident critic of religion, uh, he made the point, which is very true, I think, he said that uh, when one asks what is the origin, the genesis of religious ideas, especially when we're dealing with the idea of the world having a creator. He says you cannot attribute these, uh, these ideas simply to idle speculation. Creation is not about idle speculation about how things came to be. Presumably people thought, had thoughts, questions about this, but that's not what accounts for these stories. What accounts for these stories is an attempt to grapple with something very real, namely the problem of evil. Right. Why is the world the way it is? Why do bad things happen? Uh, creation is a way of responding to that reality that many people face. Um, because the basic question is, if things are so bad, is this the way they always are? Is this the way that they have to be? Or could they be some, somehow different? And if so, is that difference merely a pipe dream of the future? Or is it somehow grounded in the very nature of of reality? Is it grounded in the nature of things? And so we ask questions about origins. So doctrine of creation is about the problem of evil in the world. Second thing we talked about, uh, we talked about the Yahwist, um, the Yahwist writer, right? The, the author of the Garden of Eden story all the way up to Numbers 22 to 24, which is the blessing of Israel by Balaam. And um, there, 
This is when we talked about the creation of Israel. We saw how the creation of the cosmos is one thing, but in the Bible, the creation of Israel as a people, the bringing into existence of a people in history uh, that is, in effect, God's plan B for bringing the world to the fulfillment that he wishes, this creation of this people is itself God's remedy for the brokenness of creation, the brokenness of the world, the, the problem of evil in the world. And so we looked at the various ways in which especially this author portrays the birth of Israel, both in terms of the begetting of the patriarchs in Genesis and, of course, of the liberation of the people from slavery in Egypt in the book of Exodus. Then, um, two weeks ago, we talked about creation and temple, uh, how in the view of another Old Testament author, which we call the priestly author, he's the one who wrote Genesis 1, uh, for that author, the purpose of creation uh, or the goal of creation is worship, is praise of God in a space, a sacred space, a place of worship. And so we talked about the tabernacle and how that becomes sort of a model of creation and how what people do in that space uh, is in effect modeling how we are to relate to the world itself. Especially this notion that creation is not simply a past event, but an ongoing activity of God and that human beings are empowered by God to participate in that creative activity. Then finally, four, the Old Testament presents the history of Israel as the outcome of God's ongoing creative activity. So we talked about these, these beautiful ideas, right, that uh, Israel is created to heal the brokenness of creation or the temple or the tabernacle are formed in order so that people can... Uh, sort of participate in an ideal version of what the world is supposed to be. But, we, of course, we know that the world is not always this way. So what happens when the ideal system breaks down? What happens when this ideal model of human activity and of our relation to the world breaks down when history interrupts us? So we looked at the various catastrophes in Israel's history and how those are both described as a process of what I called decreation. The language of creation is invoked to describe the breakdown of order, and then also to describe God's attempts to recreate, to rebuild Israel, to rebuild the world, where we finally get to this idea of the new heavens and the new earth as the goal of God's activity in the world. So that's a very brief summary of what we've done. And uh, I'd actually like to, rather than go through a bit more detailed PowerPoint, I'd actually like to have you take a look at the two handouts I gave you three handouts, of course. One is the outline of this talk, but the second and third are actually what I call concept maps of these two great narratives within the Old Testament, within the Pentateuch, uh, that examine how the stories of creation relates to everything else. And I actually have these here, so let me just pull them up. Concept maps are what we use in class when we want to visual, help students visualize information. And so hopefully this will be a way of visualizing uh, the idea of creation as it is implicated in the Bible. The Yahwist, again, is the, begins with the Garden of Eden story. This is one of the four major strands or sources of the first five books of the Bible. And uh, one of the things I mentioned when I was talking about it that week was that the Yahwist divides history. He periodizes history in terms of cycles of generations. Cycles of seven generations. And the way he sets it up, the way he sets history up, is that you have after creation, 
which takes all of one verse. God creates the heavens and the earth in one day, and then he plants a garden, puts people there, uh, a, an animal messes things up, and he boots them out of the garden. And so then we get real history. Well, the first 14 generations of humanity are what can be termed the history of curse, where it begins with God cursing humanity because of its disobedience. And there's all other sorts of stories about people cursing other people. Uh, negativity defines the first half of history, chaos, in other words. And uh, that is genealogically represented by the various generations that, whose stories are told in this, uh, this version of the, the Pentateuch. But then that's counterbalanced from Genesis 12 following by what can be called a history of blessing in which God ceases to be simply reactive to human evil and begins to insinuate his own purpose into and will into creation uh, through the story of Abraham and Sarah and finally through the story of Israel. And you can map this out as a kind of chiasm. We talked about chiasm before which is the use of a kind of an arrangement of ideas in which the first and last idea are mirrors, images of one another, and then the second two are mirror images of each other, and then finally you get through the center. And if you were to sort of give a chronology, a sequence of this story that begins with the Garden of Eden, this is how it looks. It's actually, let me, it starts out with Adam and Eve, the Garden of Eden, creation, three curses. Then it leads into the next important story, which is the first murder, right, the first entrance of sin as such into the world. Uh, sin is the equivalent of chaos, right, for the old stories of God defeating the chaos monster. Now the chaos monster is us, and the problem in the world is violence. So we go from creation to curses to murder, and then right in the middle of the story you get the promise of blessing to Abraham and Sarah, which then leads to the birth of the people whose story reverses the stories of the first 14 generations, right? Reverses the stories of fratricide, reverses the stories of human beings trying to control their destiny, trying to control themselves in God's despite. Then you get at the climax of the story, another murder, which is actually Moses murdering an Egyptian. The only two murders in the story, except that Moses' murder is presented is certainly not a liability to him. It's actually what causes God to choose him for his task of liberating people from the cycle of violence. And so then we have the Exodus story leading to the birth of Israel as a nation at the crossing of the sea and following on to Mount Sinai where they enter into covenant with God. And finally, as they are marching towards their land, they are blessed three times by Balaam, right? The non-Israelite seeing them, seeing the blessing that was promised right in the middle of the story. He sees the blessing that was promised. He compares them to the Garden of Eden, and then he blesses them three times, and then the story is over. So we can see how creation really doesn't end. That The story of the Garden of Eden doesn't end until Numbers chapter 24 with the three blessings that counterbalance the three curses. You can also map this story out uh, with a kind of medical analogy. Right? And etiology is the cause of whatever the problem is. So the cause of the problem uh, of human history, of creation in the Yahwist, is what I called in that lecture humanity's God complex. Uh, right? we, we, we try to be God. Right? 
And that either leads to the presumption that we can create life or that we can take life, uh, that we can dictate affairs or that we can avoid God's dictation of affairs. So that's the God complex. And uh, that reveals itself, manifests itself in two contexts in the story of Genesis and later of Exodus. It manifests itself through the attempts uh, by people to beget children, right? Eve begetting the first murderer, for example, is a negative thing. But then Sarah giving birth with the power of God to a child who is a blessing, right? So it uses, uses stories of childbirth to, to project human beings either abusing who they are or not, or acknowledging God as the source of their being. The other pathology is work or labor. Um, And so that is the pathology that is worked out in the book of Exodus, where, of course, we know that human beings are created to be workers, right? And they have a fairly hard life of it, being rainfall agriculturalists in this creation story. But then things get worse when people, certain people try to act like God and enslave other people, right? Then we have the Exodus story. So Pharaoh represents labor pathologized by sin, and so God has to deal with that too. The therapy to the problem are covenants. So there are two covenants in the Yahwist uh, story. There's the covenant with Abraham, and there's the covenant with Israel as the nation. Why do you need two? Well, again, there are two pathologies that need to be overcome. The first covenant deals with childbirth, right? It deals with the promise that God will actually intervene and redefine the context of childbirth, will redefine the context of family and nationhood. And uh, then, of course, the other, co- the other covenant is liberation from slavery. God will redefine what it means to work. Namely, he says to Pharaoh, Israel is going to work for me, not for you. In the, in the English, there's all sorts of translations that we use like worship him um, or serve him, but really it's work. Right, work is the, is the word in Hebrew, avodah. And uh, there are obstacles then to these two covenants. The first is fratricide, right? The first covenant, the, the descendants of Abraham are constantly trying to kill one another. And so the stories are of this family drama are how the family survives the threat of fratricide, which was Cain killing Abel way back when. And they avoid that negative history. They avoid that. They overcome it with God's help. And in the same way, Israel overcomes its condition of slavery through God's help. And God destroys Egypt, which represents the cycle of violence in history. So again, that is why that was a a story of creation. Um, Let's take the other major creation story and again map it out in terms of the whole shebang. This is what we talked about two weeks ago and we'll continue to talk about today. Um, For this author, we have again creation in six days plus a seventh. And uh, it's a very elaborate story, as we know. Why is it detailed the way it is? Why do we have stories about what God does on every day? And why do we have this emphasis on the creation of human beings at the end? Right? We're told that the purpose of the creation is to solve the problem of an empty and formless earth. So God gives the earth form and content. Then he creates human beings and gives them this image of God thing, whatever that is. And as the story unfolds, we, get, we begin to learn some of the dimensions of what it means to be made in the image of God, that, that uh, preeminent act of creation. This author, like the Yahwist, presents God's ongoing creative activity in terms of covenants, except he has three covenants, not two. 
And each covenant serves a different purpose, and each covenant gradually reveals different dimensions of that being made in the image of God. And we don't need to go through all the details, but we move through the first covenant, which is about respecting life, right? the life of human beings, the life of animals. Then you have the second covenant with Abraham, which enables humanity with God's help to fulfill the prime directive to humanity, which is to procreate and be fruitful and multiply. Uh, again, to translate into that to rather more modern language, that gives people the ability to form a community. So create a community is what God enables them to do. And then finally, but of course there, you know, that fulfills everything we know about human beings from Genesis 1, from the creation story. There's still the question of what does the image of God mean? What are human beings for beyond and above this? And then when Israel comes into existence and when Israel is brought into its third covenant, then finally we get the revelation, which is that human beings are actually called to be holy, to participate in God's own holiness. And so that then enables them to create along with God, to participate in God's creative activity in the world. All of the details of these covenants are encoded, as it were, in the story of creation, the creation story. So I list on the far end of the concept map the various images and terms from the creation story that are more fully manifested in the covenants. And then when we get to the Sinai covenant and we get to all those laws, we find that many of the laws actually, which we didn't talk about in this series, many of the laws of the covenant in the book of Leviticus also refer back to the creation story. They re-emphasize those three dimensions of human nature and human vocation. This idea of human dignity, the idea of human community, and humanity's activity in the universe. And if anyone is familiar with Gaudium et Spes, the church's pastoral constitution on the modern world, that's the first three chapters of Gaudium et Spes right there. So the church's own vision of the world is very much shaped by the priestly author's understanding of creation. The point again then is that creation is never over. It's an ongoing process. So I'm going to leave you with those maps. You can uh, tinker with them, ponder them. Hopefully they'll be useful. But what I want to do now is shift gears. So we've now summarized some of the main things we've talked about up until now. We want to ask the question, okay, well, if creation, if talk about creation is basically an idiom, it's basically an idiom for reflecting on what is the purpose of humanity. Why are we here? What are we called to be? It's basically a reflection on what the human vocation in the world is. That's my one-liner answer to you about what creation is about. It's about us. Well, if that's an idiom, a language for talking about, a way of exploring who we are and what we're supposed to be doing, what are the alternatives to that idiom or that language? There surely are other ways of conceptualizing how, what kind of a world we live in and how we relate to it. And so here's where I'm going to dive into just a brief sort of excursus on some of the alternatives to creation as a way of talking about who we are and what we're for. Okay, so the alternatives, and here I'm just quoting from the Catechism of the Catholic Church because it's a useful summary. When it talks about creation, it identifies six alternatives to the idea that we are created uh, to become something in this world. And uh, these alternatives, which the church rejects, are all isms. It uses the term ism for this, so I apologize for all the isms. What I want to do is sort of pair these up, describe what they mean, and then identify 
why they are rejected, why, why the church sees them as less, and the authors of the Bible saw, saw these alternatives as less, less valid, less truthful, less explanatory of who we are than the doctrine of creation. And I mentioned up here that each of these worldviews um, speaks to a very profound and important truth. Uh, many things that the church, as well as the authors of the Old Testament, regarded as heretical or false uh, is not to say that they are entirely false, but rather they're, they're one-sided. They speak of a truth to the exclusion of other truths. So what I want to do is suggest how the, the idea of creation uh, overcomes one-sided views of human nature and one-sided views of the world. And the reason why I'm going through this here is to demonstrate something, which will then lead into today's actual topic on wisdom and creation. Wisdom is basically if you will, human reason. And the basic assumption of the biblical authors, with one exception, is that through our reason, through our five senses plus our minds, we can actually discern, determine the basic truth about what the world is, about who we are, and what we should be doing in it. We can learn this without having any special story of creation. We can learn this, we can determine this simply by thinking about it and dialoguing with one another and reflecting on it. This is the assumption of wisdom literature. You can do this just by thinking about it. You have no need of special revelation or of creation story. So all that we just said about the wonderful, wonderful stories in the Old Testament, you don't need any of that, say the wisdom authors. All you need to do is to think. Um, so what I want to do here, and, uh, and by the way, this is also what the church affirms. The church affirms that even without special revelation from God, we are gifted by God with intellect, with the ability to think through who we are and what we're here for. And if we rightly exercise uh, our intellectual powers, we can know basically what we're here for. This is what the church calls the dialogue between faith and reason. The church and the Old Testament wisdom authors share this viewpoint. What I want to do by examining and then critiquing these alternatives to creation is to show how one can argue or at least reflect on alternatives and find them to be wanting and say creation is actually the best alternative. So in a sense, I'm making an argument tonight, but um, I just want to do it to show you that this is the assumption that the writings we're looking at make. Okay, first of all, the first two, pantheism and emanationism. These are the terms the catechism uses. Pantheism is the view that God is simply a convenient term for everything that exists, the sum total, the totality of that which is. There's no distinction between God and the world as such. We simply use God as a way of saying everything. The all, as I believe Paul says in one of his, uh, one of his letters in the New Testament, he calls God the all, not that he's a pantheist, but that would be what a pantheist might say. Um, Emanationism is the view that everything exists as a natural or necessary manifestation of God. Natural and necessary, the opposite of that being free. If God, if the world is simply an expression of God, and God has no choice over whether to express himself or not, then God is not free. And that means that what exists is not the result of a choice on God's part. It's not the result of an act of love. The doctrine of creation asserts that God creates out of love, right? out of freedom. And that's why we in the image of God are defined especially by our freedom and our freedom to love. 
And the, the emanationist view of the world says that that's, that's not the case. This is, a lot of these terms, by the way, come from ancient philosophy. Uh, even Aristotle, although I don't know if you call him an emanationist, his, his view of God is basically this, that God is a convenient term that we use to describe the necessary first cause of everything, right? And that this first cause, if you want to call it God, that's fine, um, brings things into being simply because that's the nature of this being to do that. The nature of this unmoved mover is to move other things and cause other things. Uh, and there's no real possibility of an ongoing relationship between uh, this reality and all that, that is created by it or all that's emanated by it. Um, both of these views, the truth that they speak of is the radical imminence or presence of the divine within all that exists. This is something that, uh, that Jews, Christians, Muslims would affirm, that, that the presence of God, God is present to everything in a radical way. There is no place that God is not present. There are some places in the narrative of the Old Testament where God is more intensely present, like the tabernacle, but God, everything is present to God. Everything is, is known by God, present to God. God can therefore relate to it directly. Uh, so both a pantheist and an emanationist would affirm that, but what they leave out is since there's no difference between God and the world, or, is there, or there's no, there's no uh, choice of God to manifest what he manifests, there's no really way uh, to account for the existence of evil. What is, must be. So there's really no way to even complain about evil in the world because that's just the way the world is. All the world is God and that's what God is. God includes that. There's nothing God doesn't include. So this is a tad bit um, facile for people who actually have to deal with the effects of sin in the world, who have to deal with real and present evil in the world. So the, the, the Old Testament authors would reject these views, as with the church, as being one-sided. They affirm something by denying something else. Okay, on the other hand, at the other extreme, there's dualism and Gnosticism. Dualism is the view that evil does in fact exist, and it's just as powerful as what we would call good. And it is primordial. It's not it's not something that comes into being. It is eternal, just like God, if you have a God in this system, is also eternal. Two principles at war with one another, and neither of them capable of achieving sort of victory over the other. In such a worldview, the only form of, of uh, liberation, if you will, or the only form of ameliorating the condition is to escape the world, to escape the world. And that's what Gnosticism is. It's a form of dualism that regards matter itself, the material universe, as evil and therefore as something to be escaped from. Due to time constraints, today's talk will continue next week at the same time. For more information about the Walsh University Lifelong Learning Academy, log on to walsh.edu. We hope that you've enjoyed this production of Living Bread Radio Presents. For an audio archive of this program, go to livingbreadradio.com and click on the programming menu. This has been a production of Living Bread Radio in Canton, Ohio. Join us again next week at the same time for more Living Bread Radio Presents.